morning. It's so good to be with you this morning, and uh, we are one sermon away from the end of this Elijah series. So you're going to pick up your Bibles right now with me, and please turn to 2 Kings now. That's right. The Elijah story goes from 1 Kings into 2 Kings. So we'll get you at uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. As we look at our story this morning, we're going to look at an inconvenient truth from the Bible. Now, why do I call it an inconvenient truth? Well, I say it's inconvenient because how we kind of treat it, we don't really tend to sing about it. It's not one of those truths where we want to kind of boldly leave the church and declare it to other people. The inconvenient truth that I'm talking about this morning is that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Now, there's a reason we love to quote John 3.16. That verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we far less often quote Exodus 20, verse 5, because that one says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We know that jealousy is a powerful emotion in that it can also bring destruction into a person's world. The dictionary defines it like this. They define it as a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantage. It is characterized by or proceeds from suspicious fears or envious resentment. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be known as jealous. Yet, the Bible, time and again, says God is a jealous God. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 15 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Or how about Nahum 1-2? Listen to what it says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath from his en enemies. That's inconvenient. I'll say this. There's a reason that we don't like to talk about this truth, and it's because we have greatly misunderstood the truth. Okay? There's not some shortcoming in the character of God if he says that he is jealous. No, the problem with this is we have broad-brushed the emotion of jealousy. You see, in the Bible, jealousy is either good or bad. In the case of God, when God expresses jealousy, it's essential to his character. That is very good. It is flawed human character which takes the, the emotion of jealousy and makes it bad. What is jealousy, biblically speaking? Well, jealousy is the desire to protect. The Bible tells us that God protects what is precious to him. He protects what is precious to him. You see, here's a truth. Holy, righteous love without jealousy is an oxymoron. That's why it can be either good or bad. If you really want to celebrate love, then you have to be willing also to celebrate jealousy. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at the character of God. We're going to see his jealousy in two ways. Let's look first at 
the fact that God is jealous for his name. Now, we see that right away in the first two verses. We get right into the tension of the text. Verse 1 begins, And after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether or not I shall recover from this sickness. Now, lots happened, right, between 1 Kings and 2 Kings. First, that, that major king, that antagonist of Elijah, is now dead. Ahab is dead. And we may have the question, what about his son? What's he like? Is he, you know, different than his father? And, and the Bible leaves us no lingering doubt. The apple has not fallen far from the tree. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 22, we know what Ahaziah is like. In fact, the only difference between Ahab and Ahaziah is that Ahaziah's rule is only like two years. And why is that? Well, we're getting the story as to why that is here. For some reason, he's on his upper balcony and he falls. We don't know how it happens. We don't know quite what happened to him in the fall. Maybe broken bones, internal bleeding, head injury. But the thing that the Bible makes clear in this story is that in this moment of crisis, Ahaziah sends his servants out not to reach out to the God of Israel, but the God of Akron, Baal-zebub. Do you know what that name means? It means Lord of the Flies. Mm. You know, the, the Philistines were observing and they'd see swarms of flies all over the, the Near East and, and they wanted some kind of God to protect them from the pestilence and, and, and the grossness of the flies and so they start worshiping this God, Baal-zebub. They believed that Baal-zebub had the power to predict the future and he could communicate that future through his seers and Ahaziah, growing up in this worldview system, says, oh, okay, well, if, if he can predict my future, then I should send my servants. But let me ask you the question, what does this say about Ahaziah? Well, clearly he sees no value in the God of Israel. In fact, as you look at the story, clearly what he's implying is that God's either non-existent or irrelevant or inadequate. Now listen, you don't have to worship a fly god to say that kind of thing to God. Now let's get right to the heart of the matter. Where do you run when the bottom falls out? Where do you go? I hope you run to Jesus. But you know, it, it turns out that that, that first response, that, that first place we run to, that is our real God. That's where we're really putting our emphasis and our faith and our reliance. And, and the scriptures are saying that wherever you run, you're also saying to God, in some way, God, you're insufficient or inadequate to take care of my needs, which is really just a soft form of atheism, a practical atheism. How so, you might say? Well, it's not so much that people do not believe in God, John Stone Street observes as he defines this. It's that they live like God is largely irrelevant. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon in the 1950s 
talked about the danger of this. He said, the most dangerous type of atheism is not theoretical atheism, but practical atheism. We say with our mouths that we believe in him, but we live our lives like he never existed. This is the ever-present danger confronting religion. And you know, he goes on to say that it's basically like you're living a life of lip service and not life service to God. Now consider these four different um, comparisons between an atheist and a practical atheist. An atheist doesn't pray because they just don't believe in God. Why pray at all? Now, a practical atheist says that they believe in God, but their prayer life is weak or non-existent. An atheist, an atheist doesn't read the Bible because they think that all of the Bible is a hoax. A practical atheist calls the Bible the Word of God, but many of them know the Bible far less than some atheists know the Bible. An atheist, well, they boast that they don't need God. Now, practical atheists, they, of course, acknowledge God, but God's really not a large part of their life Monday through Saturday. An atheist does this. They live for today, they focus on this life, and they lay treasures up on earth. You, know you want to know what's ironic? Practical atheists do the same thing. I think that's why Jesus said to us, you, you can't worship both God and money. Listen, church, there is no one in this culture today that is going to cheer you on to live for God. There's going to be no wind behind your sails getting you up on Sunday mornings, getting you out there to do things for God in the world. That's just not going to happen, which means then that we need to commit ourselves to it. We need to follow him. How do we do that? Well, I want to suggest to you today that it really just involves getting back to the basics. Pray daily. Read your Bible consistently. Sunday morning worship, make that a central component of your life every Sunday. That's so important. Tell people about Jesus. Seek to live a holy life. The big idea here is don't be like Ahaziah. Don't live like God is largely irrelevant in your life. Now, look at what happens to Ahaziah. The next part of the story is verses 3 and 4. God speaks to this man's practical atheism. The scriptures say, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Now notice that question in verse 3. Is it because there's no God in Israel? And that's repeated three times. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 16. It's clearly a, a central part of this entire chapter of the Bible. Is it because there's no God in Israel? And what we're coming to find out is God collides with Ahaziah's attempt to go off to these prophets of Baal-zebub is that God is jealous. And his jealousy can also lead to his wrath. In fact, Ahaziah is told that he will die because of what he's doing here. 
Now, you might look at that and you might think to yourself, well, isn't God kind of being a little harsh here? I mean, so what if Isaiah wants to go off to this false god and, and try to get the future predicted? He's really just talking to thin air to live and let live. God, live and let live. But again, we come into collision with the jealousy of God. He protects that which is precious to him. And one thing we see in this text this morning is that God's name is precious to him. He will not share his glory with another God. Now, I want to read a paragraph to you. In this paragraph, it's a little more technical, but it really helps us to understand why God will not share his glory. Listen closely. God is sovereign and supreme over all. Were he to share his glory with other so-called gods, he would be elevating them to a position that would not be consistent with their true nature, and it likewise would be making him untrue to his own nature, less the preeminent God he is. So pause right there. God refuses to lie. He will never say something that's false. So he'll never share his glory with a false God. And we pick up, he must be faithful to himself and maintain his high and holy position. And he wants his creatures to attribute to him that degree of honor. Now, basically, that is what he means when he says, I shall be jealous for my holy name. His jealousy does not grow out of insecurity, anxiety, frustration, covetousness, pride, or spite, as ours usually does. No, it is the natural and necessary byproduct of his absolute sovereignty and infinite holiness. Now think about this too. What would it say of God's love if God didn't bother? If he didn't bother with us, we, we walk away from him, God says, ah, it's not a big deal. Well, let's think about the analogy of marriage for a moment. What does it say of a husband or wife's commitment to one another if they don't care who their spouse ten spends time with and what they do with that person? doesn't say much of it, does it? No, there's something special and powerful about that monogamous commitment between a husband and a wife in marriage. Now, there is some pushback to that concept today. There are those who say that we have more love to give than we would give in a monogamous relationship of a marriage. In fact, there are those who are suggesting today that we would be much more happy if we lived in polyamorous pods. Which begs the question, do you really want to be a pod person? I don't. And you know, that says all the wrong things about love. It really has nothing to do with love. It has everything to do with zero commitment. But listen closely to this about God. God's love drives him to jealously insist upon exclusive commitment. Do you remember what Pastor James said last week? He says, commitment limits my options. It limits my options. That's what Joshua was getting at in Joshua 24, 15. He says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me in my house, 
we will serve the Lord. Church, limit your options. Commitment, unlimited choice, unlimited choice does not lead to more significance. Commitment leads to significance. I'm going to embarrass Bruce again because I enjoy embarrassing him and Gwen. But the significance of their life is found in the 50-year commitment they made. They did a 50-year vow renewal ceremony. And as you look all around them, all you see is significance. Family and legacy and life together and life shared. You don't get to that without commitment. You just can't. Let's continue the story. We just looked at the, the fact that God's jealous for his name, but I also want you to see in the next part of the story that he's also jealous for his people, which is significant for us. We pick up in verse 5. The text says that the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And, and they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and, and say to him, Thus says the Lord. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. I love that, by the way, church. I mean, here is this king noticing that it is Elijah the Tishbite. He gets a little bit of a descriptor of what his clothes are like, but he hears his message. Now, that's a compliment. Wouldn't that be a compliment if people who were mutual acquaintances were referring to you, they couldn't drum up your name, one of them says, oh, you know, she's got brown hair, but she's always talking about Jesus. And the other person says, oh, I know just who that is. Well, Elijah, we can tell, was faithful because they knew who he was. Now, his reputation brings him right into danger. Verse 9, the text says that then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Now, this is not an honor guard. It's not like a limo service to take him to the king. This is a direct threat on his life. Elijah knows it, and he prays for fire. Verse 10, But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Why does God use fire in this story? I see two purposes. You remember first, back to that so-called God contest at Mount Carmel, it's God versus Baal. And they say in that God contest, the God who brings fire is the real God. Do you think people remembered that by any chance? I think they did. 
And I think they could look clearly now and see God once again reasserting his right to be God of Israel. A second purpose is, of course, the protection of the prophet. Do you know that God protects his people? In fact, sometimes he protects his people in miraculous ways. Now, he doesn't always protect his people like that, but he certainly has the power and authority to protect his people in miraculous ways when he chooses to do so. At Cornelius Martin's, he was a Baptist preacher in the 1920s in Soviet Russia. And he was brought into the gulag because he was living a faithful life for Christ. And the captain of the guard takes him into an interrogation room. He tells the officers to strip the man down so that they can torture him. And he says, you know, I can take off my own clothes. And here's another thing. I'm not afraid to die. I know just where I'm going when I die. And if God doesn't want me to die right now, you have no authority to end my life. Well, the captain of the guard becomes irate when he suggests that he has no authority in that moment. And so he says, he takes a gun out. He's attempting to drop the man right where he is. And he says, I'll show you the power of your God. And he goes to squeeze the trigger. And his finger freezes right there. Three times he tries to pull that trigger and nothing's happening. So he looks over to one of the lesser officials and he says, who is this guy and what is he being condemned for? And the official says, he is condemned because he is a Baptist and clearly his God is defending him right now. (laughs) Dale Ralph Davis said these words, Sometimes in the midst of it all, the the Lord of the church gives the power grubbers of this age a sign of how abysmally helpless they are. That fuels the holy defiance of God's servants, for it shows them again that the word of God will have free course, and none of the puny, piddly, royal Ahaziahs of this age can stop it. Yes. Amen. When the authority of God is pitted against the authority of the rulers of this age, of the godless religions, godless worldviews, it's a no contest. My dad used to say it like this. It's like going up against a battleship with a pea shooter. You'll never win. The third captain gets this point. He sees it. The text picks up. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. He arose and went down with him to the king. What's the difference between this captain and the other two? It's one word. Humility. Humility. You know what humility does in us? It it teaches us that power, prestige, wealth, military mind, all of those things mean nothing 
when it comes to the God of the universe. They do not sway him. They do not move him. He's in charge. I understand the order of operations of the universe. It's God on top, and and I'm somewhere way down here. The third captain gets that, and so the angel of the Lord gives him the right to escort Elijah to the king. And it's there that Elijah restates his prophecy again, and then God's message is fulfilled in verses 17 and 18. Look at those. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Well, that's his tragic end, isn't it? Two years, his life ends shortly. I want you to take a look, though, at the character of God in this story. Let's, let's focus upon that for a moment. First, of course, we've been talking about it, right? Yes, God is jealous and he's serious about his judgments. I mean, what we're looking at here is Ahaziah receives the death penalty. It does not get any more serious than that. But as you look at the story, if that's all you see in the story, then you're missing something significant about the character of God. Because God's mercy has been at work in this story. Remember, we asked the question, why does God bother? And we we answered that question because if you have love for someone, then you do bother. You make a choice to bother. So Ahaziah is sending his servants to interact with these idols. And God sends Elijah into his pathway to be a roadblock and to confront confront him with the first commandment. You shall have no other God than me. Exodus 20 verse 3. And of course, we see Ahaziah chooses to discount that. And he faces judgment. Now, what's the implication of this for us? Well, I believe there's a big application for us. It's that God is so committed to us that he won't let us walk the road to perdition easily. Personalize that this morning. God is so committed to you that he won't let you walk the road to perdition easily. He cares about you so much. He's so committed to you that He won't let you just walk away without a fight. His mercy litters the road with obstacles so that you can't walk away from Him. And you can look back in your life, and I'm sure you can see it at different times. There's times when really significant things happen that were life-altering, crushing in your life, in your world, whether it's a divorce, the loss of a job, an illness, someone that was really close to you that, that, that God took away too soon. And it was in that moment that you were halted in your tracks and you, you started getting eyeball to eyeball with God. He said, look at me, acknowledge me, follow me. He said that he would do this to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he said to the people of Israel, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden. 
For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then he said, I'm going to put roadblocks in your way if you do this. Verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. That's his roadblocks. But why? He puts the roadblocks in place because he is merciful. Look at verses 29 and 30. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Friends, God's jealousy is not about petty resentment. It's about his furious love for you. He protects what is precious to him. He will protect his name. But he also, while he's doing that, has the best interests of his people in mind. Now, how should we respond to God's jealous love? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the best response possible to God's jealous love is to remember the yes that you made when you trusted Christ as your Savior. Again, that analogy of marriage comes to mind. On July 8, 2006, 15 years ago, I remember the yes that I made to Katie. Such a significant day. It's one of those kind of days you'll never forget. It's big in your mind. You know that this was something different. This was a milestone. This is significant, right? I remember waiting for Katie to come down the aisle and grooms or future grooms or whoever you are, if you're getting married in the future, hopefully you do, don't kill the anticipation of the bridal march by taking the pictures before the wedding ceremony, okay? I know I'm old and curmudgeonly and all that kind of stuff. But it is so good just to wait and wonder, what is she going to look like as she walks down the aisle? Don't kill that. When she walked down the aisle, when Katie walked down the aisle, I teared up. Because I was thinking about all those poor, heartbroken women that aren't going to have another chance to date me. <laughs> but all joking aside, she was beautiful and I did tear up. I was making two significant statements in that moment. I said yes to her. I said no to all others. And you know what that also includes? me. Life was no longer just about me. And as I look at that decision, I don't think about all the no's. I always think about the yes. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you also made a big yes to God with also explicit no's. No to worldliness. No to other world views. No even to self. Jesus said this, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. You know what, though? As you grow in Christ, you stop thinking about all the no's and you start remembering the yes and how much the yes is better than the no's. 
As you walk with him, the Lord puts a song on your heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we look at your word, we say as a people, yes. Yes to you. Yes to your ways. Yes to your purpose in our life. Lord, if there is one here today who has not said yes to you, has not put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would see that now is the time. And Lord, for those of us who have said yes to you, I pray that we would walk faithfully. You are a jealous God, but that jealousy is motivated by your furious love. And we thank you for it, Lord. We celebrate it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.